Hey, good morning, y'all. How's everybody? Don't tell me you're awesome, you're tired. No, am I the only one? Thank you, sir. Yes. <laughs> yeah, daylight savings got me this time. Man, I'm feeling it. Or is this not daylight savings? Is this regular time? No, this is daylight savings. Whatever. All right, <laughs> I'm just tired. Okay, well, let's pray and we will, uh, we will get going. God, we are grateful to be here. Um, even if it feels like we're here at the wrong time, uh, but we know that there is no wrong time to get together. Well, just to sing these songs, to come to you in prayer. Uh, to really consider, like Beth said, how do we respond uh, in the midst of a world that has a lot of options? There's a lot of different ways we could respond to evil. Um, so we pray that this morning that you would guide us, that you'd teach us, that you would lead us, that you'd soften our hearts, but most importantly, that you'd help us to trust you, and to turn to you, to listen to you, and then to obey and to follow. So we pray for our brothers and sisters uh, in Ukraine, uh, around the world, all those who are suffering persecution and injustice. Uh, you are a God that heals, that brings justice, that will make all things new. Um, and we pray just like the end of Revelation, come Lord Jesus, come, make things right. So we pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen. So last week we began a series that's gonna go through Lent, take us up to the cross and then of course to Easter Sunday and we're calling it What About? We're just asking these questions. Last week we asked what about suffering? And in the weeks to come, we're gonna ask what about our enemies? What about God's anger and God's wrath? What about our sense of powerlessness? What about injustice? But today we're gonna ask what about betrayal? And as we have this conversation, we just need to acknowledge that there's a tension that runs all throughout scripture to us here today. That God's people, Christians, that we exist in between two worlds. That we are citizens of God's kingdom, which is a kingdom that's not of this earth, but is coming to redeem and restore this earth. But every day we wake up, we live in the midst of the kingdoms of this earth. We are citizens of nations, of earthly kingdoms. And this can actually be a problem. It can bring with it a tension that's difficult to resolve. And we see this especially as we receive news day after day about the first war in Europe since World War II. And the truth is that the kingdoms of this world, they have their own hierarchy of needs. They need to be recognized, they need success, they need to have influence, they need to have control, and often that brings with it power and money. This is really clear among nations, but y'all, it's true of us too. And when the things that we gain in this world, when they come under threat, this world trusts in the power of the sword to hold on to money and power and control and influence and success and recognition. And it's into that kind of a world that Jesus, our king, the head of the church, he has some things to say. He says this in Luke's gospel. He says, looking at his disciples, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. 
Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. That's a little upside down, right? Right? I mean, does the kingdom that you live in every day encourage you in your poverty, in your hunger, in your weeping, and in your rejection? No. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He goes on. Very next verse. But woe to you who are rich because you've already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you because that's how the ancestors treated the false prophets. That's hard. Now look, is he saying that it's wrong to laugh or to eat or to have any money? Is that what Jesus is saying to you right now? No. But he is saying that if that's, if that's, if that's all you want, that's all you're ever gonna get. There's a scholar named Michael Wilcock. He says it like this. He says, Christians are people who prize what the world calls pitiable and suspect what the world calls desirable. What do we prize and what are we suspect of? What do we hold up for scrutiny? So look, some of what we're gonna talk about today, it's gonna be challenging. Uh, It might challenge our view of things that are happening around the world, things that are going on in our own lives. So I've always found it useful uh, when dealing with difficult things to turn to people who are wiser than I am. Um, And I've tried really hard in preparing this to leave out my opinions and just share the words of Jesus and share the words of people who have studied and walked with Jesus a lot longer than me. So a lot of where I turned this week was one chapter in particular, chapter 16 in a book called Jesus the King by Tim Keller. You guys hear me refer to him a lot. He's a great trusted source. He says it this way. He says, the things that are suspect in the kingdom of God are prized by the kingdom of this world. What's at the top of the list of the kingdom of this world? Power and money, success and recognition. But what's at the top of God's list? Weakness and poverty, suffering and rejection. This list is inverted in the kingdom of God. So this is the dilemma. In this life, when things get real, when we come up against a choice between these two kingdoms, to which kingdom are we truly committed? To whom are we really faithful? That's the question that every disciple has to deal with. The first disciples faced this same question as Jesus made his way to the cross. So what I want to do this morning is look at this passage in Mark 14, if you want to pull out pew Bibles, device Bibles, whatever Bibles you have. Uh, Mark 14, and we're going to see a story of two betrayals. So listen to this. Uh, This is betrayer number one, and this is Mark 14 again, and I'm going to start in verse 43. It says that just as he was speaking, that's Jesus, just as Jesus was speaking, Judas, one of the 12, appeared. And with him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, And kissed him. And the men seized Jesus and arrested him. 
So did you notice that Judas brought with him? What did he bring with him? In order to receive his bag of silver in the end, he brings with him a small army. Is he afraid of Jesus? I think he was. He was afraid that his mission to betray Jesus, it might cost him his life. It turned out he was right. But not because Jesus took up arms against him, Judas' betrayal brought ruin to himself. Y'all, Judas was there with the other 11. He was there when Jesus preached. He was there at the table on the night of the Last Supper. He was fully aware of the difference between the way of Jesus and the ways of this world. But when things got real, he made his choice. He chose personal betrayal in order to gain respect, influence, and a little bag of silver. Judas chose the way of the world. And he appealed to Jesus' love for him by giving him a kiss to do so. He gives his master a kiss while he has armed guards waiting to protect him from harm. So you all know that story. We hear it often this time of year. But he wasn't the only betrayer in the garden. So let's keep reading. Uh, Verse 46 again. Uh, The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then verse 47. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. That's one of Jesus' disciples that did that. We'll find out who in a minute. Am I leading a rebellion, Jesus said, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts and you did not arrest me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. So the Gospel of John actually tells us which disciple it was, which one of Jesus' followers turned to the sword. It was Peter. Peter claimed to be a follower of this way of Jesus, but when things got real, he turned to the way of the sword to solve his problem. And in doing so, when Jesus condemns everybody who's come with swords and clubs after him, Peter is now no longer in the crowd of disciples. He's in the crowd of warriors. Rather than trusting in the way of Jesus, in his attempt to defend Jesus, Peter trusted in the way of the world. And in doing so, he betrayed the teaching of Jesus. He betrayed the mission of Jesus. And he left Jesus alone to be arrested and crucified. He betrayed the ethic of the kingdom of God. In this book, Jesus the King, that I mentioned, um, Tim Keller, he talks about this exercise uh, that a professor would often give his students. This is a professor of history. Um, His name is John Somerville. And I'm just going to read the way that Keller describes the exercise. It says this. It says that he challenged his students to follow through on a thought experiment. He said, imagine that you see a little old lady walking down the street at night, carrying a great big purse. It would be incredibly easy just to knock her over and grab the purse. But you don't. The question is, why not? So he goes on to say there's two possible answers. The first comes out of a shame and honor culture. You don't knock over the little old lady because that would make you a despicable person. 
that would make you somebody unworthy of respect. People might despise you because you're picking on the weak and you would despise yourself for picking on the weak. It's not a strong move and it's critical in a shame and culture and a shame and honor culture. It's critical that your strength is respected. That's a you-centered answer to the problem. But he said there's another way to think about it. And in this other way, you imagine how painful it would be to be mugged. How hard it might be for that woman, especially if she depended on the money in her purse. What would happen if it were taken from her? You ask yourself, if I mug her, what's gonna happen to her? What's gonna happen to those who depend on her? All else being equal, you want her to have a good life. So you don't do it. He says that way of thinking considers the needs and the dignity of others before yourself. It puts others before you and it's utterly different from a moral reasoning of shame and honor, which actually puts you first. You are the reason you make those decisions. So having walked through these scenarios, he asks the class, he says, okay, so how many of you would take the purse? So really quick, how many of you would take the purse? Just making sure. <laughs> of course, nobody's gonna take it, right? But then he asked them, and this is a college classroom, okay? A modern college history class. He says, why not? Which train of thought would you choose? And he says, year after year, almost everybody claims the second train of thought that puts others before themselves. So then he tells them this. He says, you might not realize it, but that idea that you all espouse, that you would make a moral decision because you put others before yourself, thinking of others before thinking of yourself, that comes from Christianity. That did not exist prior to Jesus. Your morals have been shaped by a faith that many of you would tell me you reject. That's gotta be a powerful moment in a college class. So Keller takes the story and he applies it uh, to the story of the betrayers in the garden. He says that to Peter and to all of us, Jesus is saying, my kingdom is not of this world, it's completely different. And this is how I'm gonna change things. I'm going to put others ahead of myself. I'm going to love my enemies. I'm going to serve and sacrifice for others. I'm not going to repay evil with evil. I'm going to overcome evil with good. I will give up my power, my life. Weakness, poverty, suffering, and rejection will now be at the top of the list. My revolution comes without the sword. So as I said, much of what I've shared with you today so far, it comes from that book, Jesus the King, chapter 16 in particular. If I had a list of desert island books, it's one of them. <laughs> now, there's a handful of books by modern scholars and pastors that I think are absolute must-reads. This is one of them. So I'd really encourage you to take some time, like get a copy, take some time with it. This summer, uh, we're gonna begin walking through verse by verse the Gospel of Mark. And that book is gonna be an important resource for us through that series. So, so do you see, do you see the dilemma that we face just in our everyday lives? That when things get real, we have a choice between two kingdoms and they are very different from each other. Where do we turn? We might not betray Jesus the way that Judas did. Most of us won't be in a position that we have to do that. But will we betray his message? Will we betray his teaching? 
Will we betray his mission? What is the one thing Jesus told his disciples to go and do? What's the last thing he told us to do? Go and make disciples. Why is that new language for the church? Will we betray the ethic of the kingdom the way Peter did? Will we betray his mission the way all the other disciples did? The truth is there wasn't one betrayer. There weren't two betrayers. There were 12 betrayers that day. In one way or another, they all fled as the soldiers arrested Jesus. They abandoned Jesus as he hung on the cross. Might we be tempted to betray Jesus because if we're honest, we just prefer the way of the world more. We want the recognition and the influence and the wealth and the control and the power. And yes, even if that means that we need the sword to defend everything this kingdom has given us. When things get real, which do we choose? And look, it might seem like it's a simple answer. You might think I'm leading to a very simplistic answer, but I'm not. This is all really complex. We live in a complex world and I'm not here to make light of any of those complexities. This world is full of chaos and suffering. There is a clear struggle against evil in this world. There is real evil and there's a biblical mandate that goes all the way from the Old Testament through the New and to today that we are to defend those who cannot defend themselves. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, some of you might be familiar, he was a Lutheran pastor, theologian, and he was a proud German. And he wrestled as a pastor with how to handle the rise of Hitler and Nazi Germany. Bonhoeffer was part of what was called the Confessing Church Movement. Um, That was a movement that spoke against the Nazis, spoke against Hitler himself. In 1937, Bonhoeffer Bonhoeffer wrote The Cost of Discipleship. Uh, It was published and then immediately banned. And in it, he's calling Christians in 1937 to radical obedience to the way of Jesus, even in the midst of Nazi Germany. He wrote especially about what he calls cheap grace. He says this, he says, cheap grace is preaching forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, Grace without Jesus Christ, living and incarnate. Over time, as the Nazi movement grew, the confessing church became less and less vocal. Pastors of those churches were captured by Nazis and thrown in the same camps that the Jews and the Poles and the Russians were. Many of them were actually singled out for torture, playthings for Hitler scientists to see what would happen if... They were using pastors to do this so that the confessing church would repent of its obedience to Jesus and its rejection of Nazi Germany. And some of them gave in. They became reluctant to speak against Hitler. When I went to the concentration camp in Dachau in September, there was a Protestant church on that site today And there's a plaque inside that Protestant church that acknowledges how remarkable and what an act of forgiveness it was on behalf of the German people to even allow the Protestant church to be there. 
because of the way that many Protestant churches abandoned their mission and bought into what was happening and allowed so many people to suffer. And a remarkable act of forgiveness, they installed that church on that site so that we can move forward and say it never happens again, right? But back then, the moral high ground wasn't working. Bonhoeffer himself was a pacifist. Eventually, he joins a German resistant group. He later takes part in the Valkyrie assassination plot of Hitler. For doing that, he's executed in 1945. He was 39 years old when he was executed. And he was executed four days before the Allies came and freed the camp in which he was executed. There's real evil in the world. These are complicated issues. I've never fought in a war. I don't have a right to judge or cast any aspersion on the way people or nations, including ours, deal with real evil. All I'm asking us to do, especially in the season of Lent, especially in the midst of conflict everywhere, is to just slow down and take Jesus seriously. To not dismiss his words, but to listen to him. To truly listen to and reflect on this ethic of God's kingdom. To prayerfully consider how we can respond with our words, with our actions, how we respond to the things happening around the world and the things happening in our lives. I have the privilege every week of leading four different Bible studies. And without exception, this Russian invasion of Ukraine, the problem of Vladimir Putin, it has come up for discussion in every one. And notice that I didn't use the word debate. I said discussion. Because every one of those studies, they have thoughtfully wrestled with this issue. We have done something that's really rare in this age of social media and cable news. We've had nuanced discussions about really hard things. But the way we have done that is that we have held the events of the day up to the light of Jesus' teaching. We have turned to the teachings of Jesus rather than away from it. We have wrestled with the fact that at the end of the day, however we may feel, that even in the face of evil, we reflect on what Jesus did, forgive them, they know not what they do, and we reflect on what Jesus said to us. This is similar to what I read to you from Luke earlier, but this comes from the Gospel of Matthew. These are what we call the Beatitudes. This is the whole list. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He goes on later in the same sermon to say this, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek as well. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them too. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. 
that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Like on a really personal note, forget world events. How do you do that in your own life when someone has betrayed you, when someone has hurt you? How do you do what he just said? I think the truth is that we can't. That it is the power of God's spirit in us that even makes it possible. But I know what we can start doing as we move toward Jesus's teaching. We can choose, I'm going to trust him in this and all I can do right now is pray. Like for real, and this is hard, but I'm sure everybody in this room has somebody that has betrayed them, somebody that has hurt them. I have. What does he say? Love your enemies, pray for them. That's where you start. If you have a name in your life of somebody who's hurt you, who has betrayed you, that you don't know how you could ever forgive, I get it. Start by praying for them. Do it for two weeks every day. Pray that for their good, they would come to know the grace and the mercy and love of Jesus. Pray for their good. Do it for two weeks straight every day. Then keep doing it for a month. Do it for six months. And at the end of six months, ask yourself, am I more likely to be able to trust Jesus and love that enemy than I was six months ago? If you do it faithfully and rely on the power of his spirit, the answer will be yes. If we are truly the body of Christ, if Jesus is truly our head, we cannot dismiss his teaching. Y'all, we can't pat him on the head and put him in the corner because he's naive. I think sometimes we dismiss him because we say, yeah, but that was the first century. Our world is so much more complicated. (laughs) Give me a break. That's nonsense. We can't dismiss him on one hand and on the other claim his blood. So how do we reconcile the teachings of Jesus? The ethic of the kingdom of God. While we live in a world where people and nations looking for success and recognition and influence and wealth and power turn to the sword to keep it, often at the expense of the innocent and the helpless, I heard someone say in a song once that when the, when the rich wage war, it's the poor that die. And whether that's the soldiers who are going to fight or innocent people on the streets, that is often true. How do we reconcile this? What are we supposed to do? All I know is that betraying the ethic and the teaching of Jesus, betraying his mission in the world, dismissing the words of our savior is simply not an option for a kingdom people. So I don't know the final answer to the dilemma, but I know where to start. We turn to scripture and we take it seriously. We turn to the father in prayer and we spend more time listening than we spend talking. We trust in the power of the Holy Spirit to do remarkable things. We believe that God's spirit can do incredible things. Things that we might not even consider praying for because it's just beyond the limits of our imagination. It's beyond what we believe God can and will do. Are your prayers bold? 
Do you ask God to do things that you don't even think are possible? <laughs> okay, this has been pretty heavy. Um, I'm going to give you some good news really quick. I was just telling some people in the narthex. So this past Thursday, at 12 noon, I'm finishing up the retired men's Bible study that we do here. And my friend Bob Durrell, who comes to the 11 o'clock service, he's really tight with the Astros. Uh, good friend, takes me to games all the time. He's coming to pick me up for lunch. So we're getting ready to go to lunch. And I remember that Bob said last year, at the last game we went to, he said, hey, my friend with the Yankees, he's coming in. They open homestand next year with the Yankees. I got tickets for you. Like, oh my gosh, I've never seen the Yankees. That's awesome. I can't wait. Then what happens? A lockout. Good grief. So Bob comes, we go to lunch. We're sitting at the Carabas. And he says, yeah, my friend from New York, he's still coming to town. I said, you know what? We need to pray. And I prayed specifically that God would heal the division between Major League Baseball and the players and that there would be a conclusion that would restore the season. I kid you not, an hour later, I'm walking out of the restaurant and what text alert do I get? Major League Baseball and the Players Union have come to an agreement the season is on. Y'all, I have powers I didn't know I had. <laughs> I single-handedly restored Major League Baseball. <laughs> Many of you know where this is going if you're following the news. I was immediately humbled by God's sense of humor. Yes, Chad, baseball's is back. baseball is back. Your tickets were for April 5th. Baseball starts April 7th. <laughs> It's a joke, but God can do remarkable things, y'all. He can. Do we ask him, do we trust him? And will we walk in obedience with him? We're gonna keep wrestling with Jesus some more over the next few weeks. Next week, his command to love our enemies. And then the very next week, we're gonna go back and say, wait, you said to love our enemies, but look at God in the Old Testament. Seems pretty angry. So we're gonna deal with these things. And I really wanna encourage you just over the next, through Lent, if you miss a Sunday, like go back and use the podcast, watch the service online because these weeks lead one from the other. We're dealing with really difficult things and this is a six week long conversation. And it's a conversation that's gonna lead us to the foot of the cross where we're gonna have the chance to leave some things there to make a decision whether we're gonna go into the world after Easter, into a new world, into a resurrection world where we can make choices that reflect the kingdom of God each and every day, no matter how hard those choices might be. So I just wanna ask you to keep wrestling. Be slow to have definitive answers, quick to wrestle. In your conversations with friends, at work, in Bible studies, in your times of silence and times of prayer, turn to the words of Jesus and take them seriously. Turn to our Father in prayer and trust that the power that raised Christ from the dead, that through that power, that God can do this, what it says in Ephesians 3. God can do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. And look at that. According to his power that is at work where? Within us. Through who is God gonna work 
to bring hope and reconciliation in the midst of a world full of chaos and suffering? Us. He can do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful that this is a church that is willing to deal with difficult things. I am so grateful two years, this, the anniversary. <laughs> this is the anniversary of the Sunday that the pandemic began. Of a Sunday where we did not gather here in person, but we gathered online. And I'm grateful that this church over the past two years, that we have wrestled with this well. We have disagreed, we have not always known what to do, but we have done it in love and we have turned to you. We have not fought battles over vaccines and masks. We have not fought, fought some of the battles that our culture is fighting. We have come together. We have trusted you and we have loved one another. I'm so grateful for that. I pray that that continues into this next season. Now drama of what's going on in Europe and then just whatever comes next. It will always be and then and then and then. There's going to be something else. So this morning, I pray that that prayer in John 17, encourage everybody to go home and read it, that prayer that you keep us unified and united, but that you do so under your head. That we would not trust all the voices that we hear on news and on social media more than we trust yours. That we would turn to your voice and give it as much time in our lives as we give those voices on social media and on cable news. We don't have easy answers but we know where to take the problem. So give us the courage to do it. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said. Amen. Amen. My friends, one way that we can wrestle with God is through spiritual formation. And this is simply a practice of growing closer and closer to God through intentional methods that have been practiced throughout the Christian faith over the centuries. So dating back at least to the 1500s, people would find direction for their lives in the practice of examine. The questions of examine help us to pay attention to how God is present in our everyday lives all day in the most ordinary things that we do. And these questions help us to deal with all the data that's coming at us all day long. These questions help us to pay attention to our mental health, to our emotions, to our physical health. Examine helps us to deal with what brings us death and what brings us life. So this spiritual formation can be done individually. It can be done with prayer partners. It can be done in a group. You can do it in your family. Mike and I would do this with our kids at the dinner table. Now we had to coach him a little bit. We had to say, you know, you're gonna have to say more than one word in your answer. And we would tell them, your best answer can't always be recess and your worst answer can't always be math. So let's practice examine here, all of us together. The first thing you do is you choose a pair of questions. So here are some examples. These come from St. Loyola in the 1500s. Just as an example, you choose a pair. Maybe it's the first one. For what moment today am I most grateful? And for what moment today am I least grateful? Or maybe your questions are, when did I give and receive the most love today? And when did I give and receive the least love today? 
Another option, what was the most life-giving part of my day? And what was the most life-draining part of my day? Perhaps you would choose, when today did I sense a deep connection with God and others and myself? And when today did I sense like the least connection? And this one is good too. Where was I aware of living out the fruit of the Spirit? And where was there an absence of the fruit of the Spirit in me? So these are just some options. You choose a pair of these. And we're gonna do this here in just a minute. And then we'll have a moment of silence for you to do that. And I'll wrap this back up in prayer and, um, and we'll go on with the service. At home, you could do it a longer time. So look at the questions. Choose a pair for yourself. We're just gonna do it privately here. You don't have to pair up with anybody. You don't have to talk. But just pick a pair. Find a position that's comfortable if you wanna be in receiving, if you wanna put your head on the pew in front of you, if you just wanna close your eyes. I'm gonna give you a moment to wrestle with one of those. Almighty God, we thank you for giving us the freedom and the opportunity to wrestle with you. You do not mandate. You allow us to be full of emotion, to be full of questions, and you grant us the silence to sit, to listen, to hear your still voice, I pray, Lord God, that you will help us to wrestle with your word, to wrestle with the choices that are before us, that you will grant us wisdom, discernment, and peace. I pray all of this in the name of the Christ, amen. So obviously, if you were to do this at home, you would take more time than we did here. Take more time for that. If you do it with a prayer partner, if you do it in a group, then talk about it. Lay those questions out before you and see what everybody around you is saying and what's going on in your family. This is a great way to do dinner time. And then pray about it. Because what you're gonna see from examine are the lowest lows and the highest highs. You're gonna see and feel conviction. You're gonna see and feel affirmation. Examine is a wonderful tool for wrestling with those kinds of questions with God. And then see it as an invitation to prayer. If you will do this every day, you will grow closer and closer to God. You'll grow closer to your prayer partner. You'll grow closer to your family as you lay these things out on the table. So I invite you, pick a pair of questions, search your heart and answer them honestly, and then give that over in prayer to God. Sound good?